Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I am news correspondent Zara King and I'm joined in studio by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Hey Zara. And political correspondent Gavin Riley. How's it going? Good. Um, guys, look, we're going to get straight into uh, a discussion about what's happening between Israel and Gaza. Um, we're going to go directly to Gaza, Richard, because you have been speaking to somebody who is dealing with very difficult circumstances at the moment. Yeah, we've heard in recent days about the fact that there's about 40 Irish uh, citizens who are currently in Gaza and they have no way out. We've heard that from uh, Michal Martin, the Taunashtown Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, who has been pushing for humanitarian corridors to allow Irish citizens to make their way out, whether that be through Egypt or through uh, the crossing into Israel. That has not been possible given the bombardments which are there and the diplomatic situation. So the story is really that of Ibrahim Alaga, his wife Mida, their three kids, Eileen, uh, Omar and Sammy. Uh, you'll actually see them in some of the photos that we have here on the, on the television version. I've showed them on social media as well, but they are Irish uh, Palestinian citizens. Ibrahim uh, and his wife Mida were both born in Gaza. They've been living in uh, Dublin for a long, long time. Ibrahim's uh, 38 years old. He's a software engineer, lives in Blanche. Uh, really lovely guy, a lovely family. Uh, they were over visiting Gaza, their families, before the war broke out and what happened with Hamas in Israel. Uh, and what has happened since then has been a terrifying experience for Ibrahim's family uh, and for their extended family as well, who they are now currently holed up with in his parents' gaff. Uh, which is about 90 people uh, inside of it. So they are, of course, as you'll be here now in this, they are short on water, they are short on power, they are short on food, and this has had a terrifying impact on his three young kids. Uh, we were forced to go to my parents' house, which is in the south of Gaza Strip, in a city called Hanunis. So that's where we are right now. Um, and then a couple of days later, so on Friday, um, the Israeli army um, announced that they want everyone living in the in, in Gaza City to go to the south, and that's when none of my relatives and friends asked me if they could come to my house, my parents' house, and we welcomed them, welcomed them all. We're now a group of around ninety people. We're staying in a single house. They include relatives and friends who asked to come stay for us fleeing Gaza City. We work them all. We're, they're all here in our house. But the problem is trying to source food, water, energy is a daily struggle. Um, over the past couple of days, we were uh, we didn't have enough water. The only water we had was just barely enough to drink. Thank God today, um, there is some water supply coming through the main pipes, so we filled all of our tanks. Thank God today we're okay on the water, but still we still have the problem uh, on food and on medicine. We have one person living with us who is diabetic, who might run out of medicine within a couple of days. We have a pregnant woman 
Um, what we really fear is that if anyone within our group needs hospital or any emergency assistance, we will not be able to reach any hospital. Not a single hospital will be able to accommodate us or help us with anything. Yeah, and obviously some of the hospitals have been saying that they've run out of power, that they're running low. Absolutely, no, I mean, no yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, that's, yeah, and, and above all of that, from time to time, we, we could hear bombs and explosions happening and um, not directly around us, but we can hear them, we can see the smoke coming up. Um, and this is frightening the children a lot. And um, so, I mean, our situation is very stressful and I don't know, it's, it's very, very difficult. Can you explain, because obviously you're there with your kids, how many kids and how, what are their ages as well, Ibrahim? Um, my, I have three children and my ages are eight, four and three. But within our group, um, we are a total of, we have 10 children who are under the age of five. Under the age of 18, I'd say we have 25 to 30 children under the age of, uh, under the age of 18. These are young kids. This is like the worst thing you could possibly imagine. How do they react when they hear airstrikes? What do you explain to them about what's happening? Um, Look, the younger children, the under five children, we try to say to them, look, don't worry, don't be afraid, it's, it's only fireworks. And, you know, we try to, we try to hug them, you know, um, they, they, but after a couple of minutes, they're okay. That's, that's regarding the younger ones. But there was one night where it was really terrifying. There was a lot of back-to-back bombings, right? That night, when they went to sleep, they, one of my, my, my youngest ch- uh, son, uh, he woke up a couple of times during the night just screaming. I don't know what he was, if he was dreaming something bad or whatever. I don't know what was happening to him, but constantly sleeping and then waking up and screaming. Now, my main problem is my eldest one, which is eight years old. He kind of understands what, what is going on. He does feel the pressure and the stress that we have, you know, he kind of understands that we're running out of water, we're running out of food, and and people are being killed outside. He understands all of that. Yeah. He keeps on asking, are we going to die? Are we going to die? You know? He keeps asking, are we going to die? I just, like... I feel like when we report on stories like this and we hear so much about war and conflict and we sometimes we get lost in in he said, she said in the back and forth between the political aspect of it and and the diplomacy and we actually forget that there are small children lying mm-hmm. in their beds at night waking up screaming as we heard there in that conversation that you had Richard and asking their parents if they're going to die. Yeah. And what's really striking about that is that this is something which is clearly going to scar Ibrahim's kids, particularly that older one, because he's so sort of sentient and understands the, the gravity of what's going on. And what's really striking about this, and it, it's terrible to, to sort of think of it this way, because it, it almost then creates this kind of hierarchy, but that like, they don't live there. They went on a holiday. No, they live in Dublin. They, they, they live in Dublin. They live in Blanchardstown. They live in Dublin 15. They're constituents of the Taoiseach and they, they went on a holiday. And this happened to them in the middle of that. And, and I'm not saying that that makes it any 
easier or harder to tolerate when they haven't grown up in what has basically been an ongoing war zone as, mm. as they might have done had they lived there. It sort of normalises to to a point and you, you learn to curtail your life to, to live inside those circumstances. But if that's how harrowing it is for people who are now caught up in all of this and, and an eight-year-old child who wakes up screaming, wondering, is he going to die? And that's, that's not people who are there full-time. You can only imagine just how psychologically draining as well as the challenges of living every day uh, it must be for the people who who aren't just there on a holiday who, whose lives are, are permanently like that. Yeah. And what are their chances Richard of getting out? Difficult. Um, obviously there is work or it's something that I'm supposed to come around to later on. The European Union is trying to open humanitarian corridors. That's not happening. Mm. Uh, the Egyptian government also quite wary about that. Uh, they did try and get out via Rafa which is the crossing into Egypt. Uh, that didn't work because that crossing is obviously not open for people to leave Gaza through. Um, I'm going to interrupt you. Can you explain why that is? Because there are a lot of people who would think that if Egypt is a country of more like mind uh, than Gaza, that you know it's another Arab country with a certain amount of solidarity, they would think that the crossing would be a little more open and that it, transit between Egypt and Gaza might be easier than it would be into Israel. So why isn't it open? Yeah, there's a diplomatic back and forth between Israel and Egypt about it. Basically, the al-Sisi, who is the leader of Egypt, uh, says that it isn't Egypt's responsibility to have to um, care for what is the impact of what he sort of describes as Israeli war crimes. And obviously Egypt is actually a friendly country towards Israel at this point in time, although okay. whether that remains at this point is interesting. So they also, don't want a refugee crisis? No, not without Israel actually putting up, you know, funding and supplies okay. to allow them to actually look after people. But it's kind of beside the point because, again, as you say, these are Irish. This, this is an Irish family which is caught up in this. That shouldn't really matter to, the, to a huge extent. But it is worth bearing in mind as well that they are in Khan Yunus, which is about midway down the Gaza Strip. It is in the area to the south of the evacuation area, which Israel warned everybody to flee from Gaza City. Again, one of the densest regions uh, anywhere in the world. About a million people have been told to move south to Khan Yunus. So that's in the area where Israel has told people to go to. There are still airstrikes happening there. And there's still airstrikes mm -hmm. happening close to the Rafa crossing, which is where people had congregated trying to get out of Gaza and trying to actually follow the instructions and warnings from the Israeli military. It is terrible to hear. I mean, I was when I was chatting to Ibrahim, I asked him um, what he wants people back home in Ireland to sort of understand about the situation. And I think it'll be drawn into sharper focus based on what happened uh, on Tuesday night. But he says... I just can't believe the amount of children who are being killed, the amount of babies he's seen who have died. Um, it is truly, truly shocking. And once again, in any of these conflicts, it is civilians, it is ordinary people who are seen as collateral damage or the ones who bear the brunt of anything like mm. this happening. The hospitals, he said, are without power. This is something we've heard warned about by Médecins Sans Frontières mm. and the UN for a long, long time as this crisis has worn on. But again, it's just drawn into starker light um, based on what we've seen on Tuesday night. The Irish uh, consulate or embassy, I should say, in Ramallah uh, has basically told him to stay put at this point, that the crossings aren't opening. There's no point in taking mm. chances if he's safe and holed up mm -hmm. with 90 people. Mm. Again, there's a huge danger in that if a bomb or a missile hits a building with 90 people in it's it. even like the point that he was making to Richard about not having food and water like mm. and a diabetic among the 90 people that they're, they're staying with that the diabetic may run out of medication that like how long can he survive standing still as well and like that's the sad reality for what's happening in Gaza now is that you know if you're not killed in an airstrike there could be a, a slower more painful outcome you know what I mean that there's no 
people are dehydrated, they're not getting access to food. Like it's not a given that, you know, staying still is the safest option either. There is no, there is no safe option mm. here. Yeah. And, and that, that's what's so striking that even when you say that the advice of the, uh, like the diplomats in Ramallah is stay where you are. And you can understand to a point, well, you know, there's no point in, in leaving a house where you've got shelter and whatever semi-reliable source of food or water you've got if it means fleeing and going to basically a refugee camp beside the Egyptian border with no guarantee of, of safety or, or freedom of movement. There's also the point, Gav, just if they do leave, if they did go to the border crossing, he's in, terribly conflicted about that because it would mean leaving his family behind, mm. leaving his parents behind and yeah. possibly yeah. never seeing them again. Which taps into the other bigger concern that there is among the Palestinian people about what's going on because the, there is this sense in a wider picture that like, you know, Palestinians refer to, you know, the great catastrophe of of their forced relocation around the world after the creation of Israel in the late 1940s and this mm. dispersal of people from what they consider to be their homeland. And, and their great fear is that this is going to be the second round of it, that Israel is trying to use this as some kind of a cover or by some means of expelling the people of Gaza from Gaza so that Gaza can be flattened, Hamas can be obliterated and then they don't care whether there's any right of return afterwards. And given the historical resonance of that happening 75 years ago, you can understand the reluctance of many people to leave and risk mm. the same thing happening all over again. And just important to talk about and, and move on to the conversation about what's happened at the hospital in Gaza City because there's been an explosion in reports of at the time of recording at least 500 people killed. Um in that what was described originally as an Israeli airstrike. Now, the US President Joe Biden is visiting um, Israel today and is saying, and we just have a couple of lines here, that the other team was responsible for the explosion at Gaza Hospital and that's based on data shown to him by the US Department of Defence. What did you make of that, Richard, when you heard that from the US President? This is a difficult one. Um, first of all, the Joe Biden visit to Israel um was almost rendered pointless um, mm -hmm. in a grand sense of trying to de-escalate the situation by whatever happened, the blast at Al-Ali Al-Arab uh, Hospital, which actually has strong links to Ireland. It's um, a lot of fundraising has gone on through the Church of Ireland in Dublin and in Glendalough mm. for that hospital over the years. Um, but based on that blast, there was a huge outpouring um, of opposition to it. The conference that they were going to be holding in Jordan to try and de-escalate the situation called off. So now it is just Joe Biden visiting Benjamin Netanyahu to express mm. solidarity and support between the US and Israel. Now, as you say, Zara, yesterday, the initial word out was from the Palestinian health officials in Gaza who are linked to Hamas, who said that this was an Israeli airstrike mm -hmm. um, and that 500 people were killed. Uh, that was backed up by groups, including Doctors Without Borders, who were operating in that hospital, who said that it was an Israeli airstrike. They described it as a massacre. Israel played an interesting sort of plays it off the bat quite interesting in that they were initially saying, we don't know what happened, we're going to try and find out what happened. And then over the course of a number of hours, they said, this wasn't us, this was a misfired rocket. Now, it's a very, very difficult situation for journalists who aren't in Gaza, and there are very few Western journalists who are in Gaza mm -hmm. to try and actually deduce what happened. It is fair to say, and it is a fact to say, that rockets are fired from near hospitals and other civilian mm -hmm. infrastructure from Gaza by groups like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, mm. which is the group which Israel has blamed this on. That is yeah. a fact. What is also a fact is that Israel has previously targeted or has uh, bombed uh, medical infrastructure like clinics. Yeah. Uh, what has also happened, it's also a fact to say that it's very rare that a rocket fired from Gaza would cause that level of destruction. Mm -hmm. They're normally a lot smaller, but there are circumstances which Israel has pointed to, which would actually back up their case, saying that this was, you know, the propellant and fuel 
open air the video of the of the, the courtyard in the hospital doesn't seem to indicate a big big crater mm. so it indicates there's fuel and, and burn. if the contention is that the hospital may have been used as something of a Hamas base anyway then there's a chance that you have basically ignited other weaponry so that one rocket lands and ignites more and it creates this cataclysmic event that wouldn't have happened otherwise yes yeah. the point the point just to finish the point I was going to make as well is that it is also the case and it is also a fact that Israel has multiple times in the past denied things which it then later was either independently found to have done mm. or it later had to own up to doing, including the murder of a journalist uh, last year. Um, so this is something which is going to be very, very difficult to actually bear out in reality. But the impact of it is already catastrophic. Yeah. Catastrophic in terms of the loss of life, but in terms of a dangerous situation, which now has the potential to spin massively out of control, beyond the comprehension of any of us in the studio and beyond the comprehension of any world leader mm-hmm. is what's happening. Yeah. Because the protests which we saw last night, both in Palestine, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Egypt, Istanbul. in mm. Turkey mm. and in Iran were all huge outpourings of anger. So the, the, the point about this is Israel has spent most of the last couple of years, the main point of Israeli foreign policy in the last couple of years is to try and make friends mm. in the neighbourhood where it currently is. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, everyone around Israel, yeah. doesn't like Israel, mm. doesn't recognise Israel's right to exist. It's tried to change that. It's made friends with Saudi Arabia, for example, with Jordan, with Egypt, with Erdogan in Turkey. That is all in jeopardy now because of what happened, because all of those countries have condemned Israel for this, even though, as we say, independently, we do not know that Israel did this. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 the potential um, ramifications for this are so, so serious when you see Iran already warming of preemptive action back against Israel. Mm that could come through Hezbollah in the north or could come through some other means. This has probably ignited a situation which has already been desperate, desperate in a humanitarian sense and something much worse. Yeah. And how likely do you think it is, because obviously looking at the operations and the motivations of the likes of Hamas, like how, how likely is it that Hamas would have conducted something like this on their own people in a move to sort of further vilify Israel? Well, the thing about it is, is that Israel hasn't even said it was Hamas. It's basically a different group. Mm. So Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Which is actually but, a really important point when you hear Joe Biden saying that it was the other team or the other side. But mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if the war is against Hamas, Hamas aren't the ones that Israel now believes are responsible for this. It's a separate group called Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which mm-hmm. hasn't stopped the Israeli Defence Forces and others still using the hashtag or the phrase Hamas is ISIS. You know, the whole justification of this is Hamas is the equivalent to the Islamic State, so they need to be eradicated total- in totality. But that's they're not the people that, that Israel has pointed the finger at. So you can't say the other team or the other side because there is a third party. And one other thing, let let it not be forgotten, the reason why there were so many people at the hospital, not just because of the ongoing injuries sustained by people in the middle of a war zone, people were taking refuge Mm -hmm. in the yard outside that hospital specifically because it's a Christian hospital. It's funded by Mm -hmm. the Anglican faiths around the world and there was a belief among the local Palestinian population that a Christian target would not be hit. That it was the one safe space that they'd have, that they would take out all the other infrastructure that they might think was around the place but if it's a Christian hospital they thought they were safe there and they weren't. So there's been a bit of a back and forth between uh, how Europe is handling the situation and how Ireland feels about how Europe is handling it in the sense that uh, Ursula von der Leyen has been criticised strongly by the President Michael D. Higgins for her remarks that she made um, in relation to that. I suppose, look, Michael D. Higgins is very clear in saying that uh, Ursula von der Leyen did not include a call for Israel's retaliation to conform with international law. He said, I don't know where the source of those decisions were. I don't know where the legitimation for it was and I don't know where the authority for it is and I don't 
don't think it was helpful. He said it may not have meant to have had malevolent consequences, mm. but certainly mm. we need a better performance in relation to European Union diplomacy and practice. And a lot of people have agreed with Michael D. Higgins on yeah. that this week. Um, it's like th- this isn't meant to be an honour CSBE podcast, but like long story short, the European Commission, of which Ursula von der Leyen is president, doesn't have foreign policy powers uh, that is set by the European Council, which is the member states themselves. So when you hear of Leo Varadkar having a teleconference with the other leaders as he did on Tuesday afternoon or when you see him go to Brussels as he will again next week. That's the body that sets foreign policy and foreign policy is set when all 27 of them can agree on something. It is not up to Ursula von der Leyen to decide what that policy is and Ireland was not alone in expressing some reservations about how unqualified Ursula von der Leyen's support for Israel was. I mean, understandably and completely correctly saying that Israel, of course, has the right to defend itself, but in doing so that it does have to honour certain humanitarian obligations and to be in keeping with international law. And um, the thing which is maybe more fascinating is that there hasn't been much European pushback about her position, but that there has been the usual level of academic hand-wringing as to whether it's appropriate for Michael D. Higgins to get into that kind of debate. Because I, was actually, I was wondering about that because I actually thought that there'd been a drop-off in the sort of the anti-Michael D. Higgins has an opinion on things mm. uh, standpoint on this. Given that's that a lot of people agree with him. I think that's yeah, what it is. Well, isn't yeah. it? That's, that's probably what it is. We had, we had this discussion when, when Zara, you were there when he described the housing situation as not just a crisis but a catastrophe. Yeah, but again, you see loads of people agreed with him on that as well so they were like well, less inclined to criticise him for it yeah, they were like and, more power too. And, and how do you tell the one guy who has a mandate who has won a nationwide election with a million plus votes how do you tell that man that he's not allowed to express an opinion that people already knew that he had in favour of Palestinian But, but what is anyway? the logistics of him not being allowed to express an opinion well, so people understand the, that? So the, the constitution only allows the president powers to act in certain ways and it's sort of silent as to the circumstances in which the president can speak. There's ob- obligations about who you have to consult if you want to issue a message to the Oireachtas or to make a formal address to the nation, but that Michael D. Higgins doesn't need the government's approval of what he's going to say in a doorstep as he was speaking in Rome in the last couple of days where all of this came up. Um, but what there happened is to the a... days where the president didn't do interviews? I thought like there was kind of a whole thing of like the president... Well, then a, then a, a private sector TV station sprung up and suddenly there was mass media and then there was plenty of people that he could talk to. Okay. It wasn't just RTE. But the, the, the just to finish off the other point, um, the constitution, again, not meant, meant to be an honour CSP podcast, but foreign policy is specifically and exclusively the reserve of the government. It's not even okay. something which is set by the Dole, which is important because we, we've mentioned before that the Dole has recognised Palestine as a state before, but the government hasn't because only the government has the power to act on foreign policy. So the idea that the president might be saying something which maybe departs mildly from the position of the government, which it didn't really in this case because Leo Varadkar also reckons that Ursula yeah. von der Leyen could have qualified her remarks a bit more. Um, but th- there's a kind of a slightly academic grey area as to whether Michael Lee's allowed to talk about foreign stuff when that is specifically not his job. Yeah, and I think I think the, the broader and more important thing is rather than getting into the, the, the sort of the circular wheel of why is Michael D. Higgins talking mm-hmm. about things, is what exactly Ursula von der Leyen is said to have done wrong here. And what she is said to have done wrong, and it is a criticism, I've, I've had a bit of research into it just to see what other European countries were saying about it. Because as we described it last week, Ireland is probably the least indifferent country yeah. mm-hmm. in terms of what happens in Gaza and in the West Bank. Mm-hmm. But there has been some criticism from other EU leaders and they're letting that be known through sources, to to things like Politico uh, about criticism. Because Ursula von der Leyen has since... Hamas committed those attacks and those atrocities in Israel um, basically almost a couple of weeks ago now, has stood resolutely with Israel, which is understandable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what it has, what she has not done, uh, what she has, actually was one particular t- phrase which she used in, I think, a statement and a tweet, which is that she would, that the European community would stand with Israel uh, for wh- whatever, come what may, for the weeks ahead, which is not something which is agreed by European no. nations. Mm. There has been a very steadfast approach from European EU countries um, that Israel needs to stick within humanitarian and international law. Mm-hmm. Ursula von der Leyen has been very outspoken in terms of attacks on civilian infrastructure, the turning up of wa- turning off of water and power in Ukraine, for example, yeah. uh, and saying that these things in many instances could amount to war crimes. Now, as we have seen, the turning off of water and power has been condemned by European countries in Gaza. There's a feeling that she is, you know, it is a very difficult stance for her to defend having that particular position on Ukraine, but not on Gaza. Even in terms of what happened yesterday, uh, she was found wanting, according to some people within the Department of Foreign Affairs, not in not attributing a blame for the hospital blast, Mm -hmm. but in just being a little bit weaker in terms of the overall response. So Charles Michel, of course, is the European Council president, Mm -hmm. said that he was appalled by what happened. Ursula von der Leyen just said she was saddened by what happened. Which, given the scale of what happened, whether it's, you know, Israel saying that this was the result of barbaric terrorism, this is the thing which causes revulsion, not just mere sadness. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge outpouring. People are sharing a lot of videos of what Ursula von der Leyen said yeah. in Ukraine yeah. versus yeah. now. Like there there was so a tweet, tweet that she posted as well. She was making a statement after that summit, that video call on Tuesday night. And the tweet said Hamas terror is now bringing immense suffering to the Palestinian people, which, you know, is, is certainly That's largely true. Effect. But it was, that was at a time when most of the world believed that Israel had just shelled a Palestinian hospital with the loss of at least 500 lives. And the idea so that the... timing the, is everything. And, and again, the president yeah. of the European institutions at that point saying this is all Hamas is doing just was very tone deaf. Can know? I ask both of you your thoughts on how damaging you think this situation might be to the European institutions, to the whole structure of, of, of Europe as a collective? Because, you know, this, is, this is, a, is a split in the camp, you know. I mean, it is definitely problematic, it has to be said, mm. in terms of, you know, getting that groupthink going or that collective yeah. sort of like positioning. It, it's always very difficult to get 27 different countries that all have different cultures. Well, you could argue, countries. like say the United States of America has 50 states, mm. and, you know, so yeah. I mean, there has to be but some there, there's, level. There's more sort of cultural glue between course, them. Yeah, you know, there, there's there's a quarter of a millennium yeah. of being a, being a single nation almost. Okay. So, um, but it, like it's very difficult when you've got different different cultural imprints, different expat populations different and the like, different well, histories. Yeah. yeah, sure. It's difficult to get all 27 in on the one road on anything. But then it inherently makes the union look weak, basically, when you can't get all 27 of them to say exactly the same thing. Because you have a situation where if Germany thinks one thing and Hungary thinks another, Germany can only be very qualified in what it can say because it can't depart too much from what somebody on the other side of the continent thinks. And that does inherently weaken them. I also think that actually things are moving so quickly now. And I, I say this knowing that by the time people get to see it or people get to hear it, that things may be outdated even further. But that the pace of events is so speed, so quick now that even when that video conference was happening on Tuesday, the bombing happens at the hospital yeah. mm-hmm. and almost immediately the findings or the the consensus is is rendered irrelevant. Um, how many more times can that happen? Like if, if things had kicked off, if there'd been reprisals backed by other Middle Eastern governments or, or militia movements, you know, like what, what's diplomacy supposed to do in that case where ministers take days to organise a summit yeah. and it's outpaced in minutes? It, it is interesting to see how different European countries respond to these. Mm-hmm. Germany, for example, is is an interesting one. Obviously, it's the country where Ursula von der Leyen is, is aligned to. She's a German politician. Um, what's happened in Germany over the last couple of weeks has been quite shocking, is that there has been a major spike in anti-Semitic attacks. A synagogue was firebombed in Germany 
overnight. So there is that history and you've seen Olaf Scholz has been very much hand in hand with Israel as well. I think he was the first leader to visit Israel after all of this happened. So there's difficult lines and historical and political sensitivities yeah. to tread here. But it does, as you say, Zara, it just really does expose some big, big problems when you can't have, you know, the European Union holds itself up as a standard bearer in terms of fairness and in terms of human rights, in terms of aid to people who need it around the world. And for it to have a sort of a, well, we're not all on the same page or we don't quite agree or we all, we can't, we can't speak as honestly and as truthfully with each other as we might wish to in any of these situations. That, that is a problem, I suppose. It does, it does look weak. Before we just move on, I suppose the final question really is about where does that leave Michael D. Higgins? I mean, did, did you know, Leo Varadkar or Miel Martin talk to him? Was there a conversation? Does, does anyone say to him, President, please well, don't do well, this. Well, or how does per- that work? Well, like, beside the person who tries to sit down, the guy who's got more votes and more popularity than them and tell right. him to get back in his box. So I, d- I don't see that happening. Look, in truth... We have said before, we do enjoy a Michael D. Higgins going, well, we do. you know, like, off-piece. Like, like, like I've said it before, that if he's the only guy who has a full nationwide mandate, like Leo Varadkar, you know, as people will remind you often online, Leo Varadkar got elected in the fifth count of Dublin West. Michael D. Higgins in a five-horse race or six-horse race uh, got in on the first count with over a million votes. He's the guy who's got the authority to speak on behalf of the people. Uh, more more than anyone else, really. So I don't think anyone's going to hold him up. The real thing would be if in the remaining two and a half years, if it's ten or two years. But do you think there's been you, any awkward conversation between the government and nah, the D to say, hang on? I don't think they would. You don't think they would? Well, I'm just wondering. Like, let's let's yeah. just crash that The only difference is if he says something unpopular. And I think well, the thing is Michael yeah. D. Higgins is popular because he says popular things. So if Michael D. Higgins said something out loud that really like rubbed people up the wrong way, like before when he paid uh, you know tribute to Fidel Castro upon his death and people were like, wait a minute now, can't be doing that. Like that's the closest he's come to rubbing people up the wrong way. So if he were to to push the limits of the office in ways that people weren't comfortable with, then there might be issues. But okay, so that's Gavin Riley confirming that it's unlikely the president has had a slap on the wrist from the Taoiseach or the Connacht. <laughs> we'll be back after the break. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, Gavin, it's been a challenging week, maybe a bit more for the health minister, Stephen Donnelly. Um, You know, more challenging, (laughs) more challenging for patients and and staff working in hospitals, actually. Never mind. When when did Stephen Donnelly last not have a challenging week? Maybe the week that they lifted the COVID restrictions. But every every week when you're the minister for health is 
is a bit rubbish, frankly. But, you know, yeah. yeah. yeah actually, no, no, yeah. no, it is. Sorry, I don't mean to, to, to okay. pivot Let, your point. Uh, well, that's true. Well, to go back to the basics, why why is it so challenging? Maybe just give us a quick a quick uh, potted history of why this has been a particularly challenging uh, space of time. Because the health service is going to overspend by somewhere between one and a half and two billion euro this year. And again, uh, people will say, does that not happen all the time? It does happen okay. all the time. But the point that the uh, head of the Department of Health and the head of the HSE would make is that this is going to recur, that this year's overspending is unavoidable, cannot be trimmed back. You cannot cut services or cut costs without cutting services. And that therefore, this is going to be the new normal, that you're going to have to continue to fund the health service to this extent. And next year, it won't be. They reckon that, you know, you'll need to adjust between one and two billion simply to keep standing still and the budget allocated 708 million. And we mentioned last week, when cost of living abates, this is going to be the crisis we're left with. Well, actually, it's a crisis which is now going to deepen because most objective analysts would tell you the HSE does not have enough money to keep standing still. Mm. And we had opposition TDs saying that the government had thrown Stephen Donnelly under a bus and people coming to his defence. So in in a series of crap weeks, at least he's had the opposition right into his defence because they reckon that the, the three coalition leaders have pointedly underfunded the health service. Now... It's it's an interesting uh, kind of Schrodinger's box thing as to whether they think that Stephen Donnelly has been sort of, you know, thrown under the bus by the rest of cabinet as if he wouldn't drag the rest of them down. It's not like the rest of cabinet is insulated from a crumbling health service, like politically speaking. But um, it, it, it says a lot about the how, how emotive this has become that A, opposition parties are leaping to Stephen Donnelly's defence. Well, they said he was out of his depth. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, well, it was a bit of a The defense thing is, is, is yeah. It's look, a tongue in cheek defense. It's a tongue in cheek defense. So nobody's under any yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a tongue in cheek defense. But B, after years of being like, come on now, HSE, you need to get your backside in gear, that opposition parties are also now speaking from the gospel of we can't trim the spending back because they know they might be in charge of health within the next 12 to 18 months and that they have to be responsible for this spending too. Richard, how much of this, and I feel like we have talked, like, I mean, we've all covered health extensively for the last couple of years. I see it too much help, but I mean, it has to be done because it's just like Mm -hmm. health and housing. They're the two biggest, you know, crises in the country. Um, How much of this, in your assessment, is mismanagement of funds to some degree? Like how much of this I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I genuinely don't know where all this money is going. I mean, people will obviously point to... We're not getting bang for buck here. People are still waiting years for services. Um, They are. And I mean, the one thing people will point to, the the most landmark of all of those things people have been waiting for, and you know, money is poured through the nose into is the children's hospital, Mm -hmm. which, you know, further reports on that this week, once again. But I just, I just, I like, (laughs) it was interesting to hear, I was listening to the leader's questions during the week and Leo Radker was sort of almost defending the stance that the government had taken in terms of the budget on health and saying, you know, we're not giving carte blanche to the HSE to just hire anybody. Mm. Um, which I think it's it's interesting to see that they are very going to be very open about we've taken this approach on health and we're not going to be shifted from it and that the HSE just because it's the HSE just won't be allowed to do whatever the hell it wants which is really interesting because um, I'm not sure that's something which is you know unifiedly no, felt within the coalition nor does it add up too much so the, the, yeah. that example that you're referring to this was in Leaders Questions on Tuesday and he said for example that the uh, HSE had hired 750 junior doctors last year or this year when it had only been get granted clearance for uh, 500. Now let's for argument's sake say that they all earn 50 grand a year. I don't think they do probably when they're junior doctors but let, let's for argument's sake say they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, their combined salary comes to 12.5 million over the course of a year. If the HSE is overspending by 2 billion quid the over-recruitment of junior doctors is not the problem. It's not the problem. And of no. course the recruiting of junior doctors helps improve clinical outcomes. It means people are less sick. It means people get better treatment. 
what I mean I know Zara you were working you again ear to the ground in terms of mm. the health sector and how you know the situation is right yeah. now rather than even before the potential deterioration of all this as a result of underfunding. Mm. Uh, What have people been saying to you? Yeah, so I put a question box up on Instagram on Tuesday and like we've put these up many times but actually I think particularly now overwhelmed by the replies. The question was, have you been in hospital in recent weeks? Tell us about your experience. Good or bad? You know, one way or the other. I said, put your mobile number in if you're willing to chat to us. Lots of people sent their phone numbers. I haven't had a chance to phone half the people who've gotten in touch. Over 100 messages came in. Um, But one lady I did phone yesterday, I just saw her message straight away when it came in and my heart went out to her her mother, 78 years old, um, took a bit of a turn, actually had been a very hale and hearty woman, quite healthy. Actually, her mum had been working part time, even though she was 78, kind of um, in a hotel, sort of o- overseeing housekeeping because she was kind of known for high standards and things like that. So she would do a couple of days, a couple of hours in the day in this hotel. She was really well got. And I'm, I'm rambling here. But the point <laughs> is, this lady, I just want to illustrate to you yeah. how active and and how healthy this lady was. She got sick essentially with a tummy bug. She was sick with her stomach. She went into hospital on a Monday afternoon, half past three, um, was left sitting on a chair for two days, just two days waiting, could not get a bed. And then on Wednesday afternoon, she finally was allocated a bed. I won't name the hospital because we wouldn't have a chance to give them the right reply on this. But I will say that this lady then died on the Thursday morning at 6am after taking a turn overnight and the family actually don't know how she died. They actually don't know what happened to her and they are totally stunned. This only happened, the lady died um, the first week in October, it's only two weeks ago and the family are sitting here going like how did we go from mum being so healthy, 78, vibrant, living her life and now she's gone and no explanation and the only thing they know for sure is that she was sitting on a chair for two days in an emergency department and while she was there her family were with her and they witnessed multiples of older people on trolleys, lines of trolleys down through the hospital, Mm. like told a very, told a story of one man who essentially needed help going to the bathroom and didn't get the help he needed. And because of that help then ended up in a very undignified situation in front Mm. of a lot of other people. Like this is like, I mean, this is not acceptable in a health service that is getting so much money. That's why I'm talking about where, where is the value? Where's the value for money? Where is the value for, for the taxpayer, for the patients, for their families? Mm. Where is the actual, you know, like where is the money going? Well, and, you know? and, and the important bit is that that, that is now, that, that is in October 2023 before any funding squeeze might come on the HSE. Yeah. So like Bernard Gloucester, the, the chief exec of the HSE, is now saying that for the first time ever next year, they might just have to build in a 1 billion euro deficit into their service plan because they mm-hmm. just don't know how they're going to be able to maintain the existing level of service without running a deficit. But I'm glad that you, you happened to mention emergency departments because sometimes we've normalised this. We've been dealing with with mm-hmm. uh, three digit numbers that have been on trolleys for, yeah. for so long and we see the INMO figures so many times a week. But right now, so we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. According to the HSE's own figures, as of an hour ago at the time we're recording this, there were 236 people on trolleys in emergency departments alone. Now that's parking... People that are on inpatient waiting lists, outpatient waiting lists, 236 people alone. Of those, 59, that's a quarter of them, have been on trolleys or more likely chairs for 24 hours or more. Mm. And that is a time where we're talking about now investing 22.5 billion into a health service and still managing to see services being cut. But we're already in a situation where a quarter of people in emergency departments are on chairs or trolleys for over a day. 
yeah. waiting to be seen. But it's also the fact that it's all year round, Richard, though, isn't it? It's that 12 month. I spoke to Dr. Andrew Westbrook, who is an ICU consultant in Vincent's yesterday. And he said to me, look, Sarah, he said, if the government wants a healthy population, they have to fund a health service because people have to have access to health care to be healthy. You know what I mean? If you want taxpayers that are healthy and they're working and they're paying their taxes, you're not going to, you know, you need, people need adequate access to that healthcare and there needs to be funding. And I just think that the fact that we've now escalated to a 12 month year crisis, trolley crisis, mm. like it's just, I actually feel like we're going from bad to worse. And I know the government, I, in some ways I can nearly understand the question of like, you know, putting some level of pause on the money and asking how is it being spent. But like, it's actually mm-hmm. not the answer when people are dying. People are actually dying. It's not the answer to just go, we're going to put a pause on the money. Now, now is not the time to do that. But there definitely needs to be a question about how the money is being spent because the, the public and patients are not getting bang for buck here. But look, we, we've been talking about, you know, all the, the, the big grand plans for reform <laughs> in the health service, whether that be... You know, Sláinte Care, which I have not heard that phrase used in a long, long time. Yeah. Even Sinn Féin and their plan for the health service said they require two terms in government to introduce an Irish NHS. Mm-hmm. So if you are hoping that a change of government in any way will change the situation, they've got news for you. Well, there's been a bit of controversy between Graham Norton and the people of his native county of Cork, because have you heard about this? We've yeah. heard about it. We've all yeah. heard about it. We've talked yeah, about, we about it. We've talked about it. Yeah. Um, for anyone who hasn't heard about it or hasn't seen the show, um, obviously Graham Norton does the red chair. People love the red chair. People come on. They have a bit of chit chat with Graham, and then they tell their story. But yeah. um, basically, one participant, she was a Scottish uh, lady called Zoe, was on the show, and uh, she had spoken about how she lived in Ireland for a while, and she said that um, she'd lived in Fermoy in Cork, and she went on to describe it as a horrible town, which is obviously not gone down well uh, with the people of Fermoy. And uh, Graham Norton sort of tried to say, "Oh, but it has a large pencil in it," and was trying to kind of, you could see he was trying to move it on a little yeah. bit. I think he probably was like you know, whatever. But she did make a kind of a very glib remark then about how it had a bridge and, you know, if you wanted to jump off it kind of thing. And it was just a bit, it just took a bit of a weird turn. Yeah. But Well, look, any, anyone is entitled to say that they didn't enjoy a time they were living somewhere. But what I enjoyed most about this was how this has like drawn the ire of the most influential group in the community, which is the Tidy Towns Committee. Oh, yeah. Uh, who mm. think that this is basically, what was the phrase they used? That it was like akin to libeling a whole town? Like, are, are, are people just not allowed to not enjoy places? Like, are they not allowed to just be honest and say, like, it wasn't for me? Like, why are people so thin-skinned that when someone else says, no, nah, I didn't like that, that they immediately have to go jump up and out about it? Yeah, like, I think, I think, it didn't, like... At the end of the day, who cares what somebody said on on on, on Graham Norton? I think she went ah, on, very like, hard. Norton's a big platform. Yeah, but like, who cares? But but it, the thing is, who cares what anybody's opinion about your town is? She's probably wrong. I think for Moy is pretty decent, <laughs> having been there a few times. Moy is a fine town. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fine decent. Town. I've been there a few times. Yeah. I see some people and their um their sort of half-hearted attempts at defending for Moy. One person <laughs> said, "I um for Moy is an okay town. I saw Red Hurley there once. He was good too. Uh, <laughs> uh, for Moy man here, not a." horrible town so that's <laughs> that'll be the tidy town slogan that now. should be on the Not side the way. but no yeah. look I mean I think she went way too far um, I think that you know but she was so passive in how far she went wasn't well, she if, it was if, so passively she, she, allergic to the place I think there's an element of Scottish humour in there as well mm. yeah the dry wit yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it was, there was an element of just barb and, and sort of pointedness in there which probably got lost in translation but the idea now that um, Fermoy is asking Graham Norton to, to come to Fermoy and you know sort of just hear about it, that they're going to make such a big deal out of a... 
a sort of a rehab program. I actually think Graham Norton will probably bring it up in his opening monologue. Do you think that they'd be? Do we think that because he's from Cork? Like, are we expecting him to bring his parochial Corkness too? Oh, I think I think Graham will have to gallop in there, and he will have to defend Cork this week. I suspect. Yeah, but you can see whether he does. He loves he loves Cork. Have you ever read West Cork? Yeah, is what he likes. He does love West Cork, but like Cork is Cork. You know what I mean? Have you read any of his books? By the way, I love Graham Norton's books. No. I would highly recommend um, getting the, sorry, I'm talking about a book recommendation here, but I would recommend the audio books of Graham Norton's books because... Does he read them himself? He reads them himself. Ah. Which I thoroughly enjoy. Big Richard Chambers read books. his book he himself did. and I thoroughly well, enjoyed one, it too. It yeah. Good, yeah. I haven't read the other one since. Yeah. No. no, I was saying you read your audio book as well. I do like when oh, the author right there, reads their yeah. book. Yes. I think it's like, because you get yes. a sense of what they really Sorry, meant yes. by yes. it. No, I get you. Yeah. If you enjoy this podcast yeah. and you'd like to hear more from Richard, Richard uh, is available. <laughs> he's like, stop flogging my book. Um, uh, speaking of places that a lot of people don't like, by the way, yeah. uh, you know how the European Parliament has to sit in Strasbourg uh, once a month for some arcane reason to do with European rules that France won't allow to be changed? Yes. This week, the MEPs were taking their usual courtesy charter train from Brussels to Strasbourg uh, to do their full week there. And there was a signalling failure. And this is my favourite story of the week. The MEPs ended up in Disneyland. <laughs> in Paris. Which is n- in neither Brussels nor How Strasbourg. So it turns out that they, they regularly detour to Charles de Gaulle Airport to pick up MEPs who are flying into Paris and then they can catch the train on the way okay. down. But there was a signalling failure. So this is and a special were, train for them? They charter a special train okay, because okay. there's there's 700 odd MEPs and all of their sure. staff have to go. So they charter trains to help bring them from Brussels to Strasbourg because mm-hmm. it's a pain otherwise. And there was a signalling failure and they're look, looking out the window and they're like, is that Space Mountain? That's oh my Space God, that's Mountain. so brilliant. But like, if so you ever brilliant. wanted to just use the phrase Mickey Mouse Parliament for anything, <laughs> there you have it. Like, you know, just... <laughs> to stick around, you know, or were they... No, I think they unfortunately had to get to Strasbourg for Monday afternoon to talk about, uh, you know, trilogues and other stimulating European Important things, work, yeah. I've been yeah. to Parliament in Strasbourg. My cousin did her Erasmus there and we had a great week in Strasbourg. It's a great city. I was in Disneyland this summer and it was a great couple of That's also fantastic. a better city. <laughs> Disneyland over Strasbourg. I don't yeah. want to end on a sad note, right? But I do, after everything we said last week about how much we were loving the Rugby World Cup, I'm so sad. Like I was absolutely bereft at the weekend about the situation and about the fact that Ireland is no longer in the World Cup. Mm. I mean, I suppose it is quite dignified to lose to anyone. I suppose you're going to lose to all blacks. It's kind of, it's a dignified out. Because ah, they're great. Aren't they great? They generally peak at the right time, which... The All uh, Blacks are great, right? Like, that's it is quite like... They, they haven't been great coming into the World oh Cup. Oh dear, okay, that's well then. That's kind of what's so frustrating about it. Like they, they got their backsides handed to them by South Africa uh-huh. in a warm-up match. Like, they nearly scored zero for the first time ever. And then a month later, there they are, you know, co- uh, beating us with some some comfort in a, in a quarterfinal. Um, the thing that, I, that, that bothers me most is that because Ireland were so fancied coming into this and because we really allowed ourselves to think that we were going to break this quarterfinal hoodoo, like the Six Nations is now five, six months away. Mm. It's kind of hard to imagine that a team that genuinely a couple of weeks ago thought we have a shout of winning the World Cup. How do you G yourself up again for a mere Six Nations athletes. afterwards? They can that's do it. I think they can do it. It really is though. I think that's quite a bit. But like, I mean, Six Nations is a different thing. It is, and it is, as you say, months down the line. Mm. So surely they'll be up for that. Does the November series happen now? Does anyone know? No, not, not, not if there's already been a, <laughs> Sorry, a World, World Cup. Cup. Yeah. Why are you Cause, laughing? Well, because you've spent it a... Guinness look at you now. November r- series. R- r- I know, I uh, like watching the matches. Yeah, like, I no, like going to the games. Like, the, it's a good day out. The Autumn International is usually on basically for all of November, but that's because they've already started the club season for September and October and they haven't had a chance to now. But like, okay. the Heineken Cup's back in a couple of weeks. So like, it'll all get going pretty quickly again. You know? I went to the final of the Heineken Cup this year. 
I wasn't. I was the most undeserving person to be there, but I did enjoy it. Heartbreak for Johnny Sexton. Yeah, Johnny Sexton's little kid. That was really sweet, actually, saying you're still the best dad. That was quite nice, actually. I did feel, but sorry, like without Johnny Sexton now, is the Ireland team like? I mean, is that what's the future like for the team without Johnny Sexton? Without Johnny Sexton, uh, without Keith Earls, who wasn't always starting, but is a bit of a sort of a a lionheart veteran for the team, possibly without Peter O'Mahony. Yeah, Peter O'Mahony. There's a lot of guys who are in the tail end of a career cycle and it's hard to imagine them still being around in four years time. Now you never know when the next young amazing talent will crop up and all the four provinces all have pretty good stacked academies of young fellas but like this was a This was the chance wasn't this, it? This was the yeah. golden generation. They're, this was the perfect blend of youth and experience. Does Bundyaki still have a good couple of years in him? No, I think. probably not another World he's Cup. He's so brilliant. Like he's well, so brilliant. That's the problem actually. I think one of the lads in sport was saying that a lot of the players are actually aged in their 30s now. Mm. So this was this was their peak. Yeah, and you know there was so much talk Ireland were heavy favourites all of the press said Ireland were going to win this game and then it was you know there's a lot of discussion about oh we have a soft quarter final and then who do we rather have in the final I think we looked past the All Blacks thinking I don't like, think I don't think, was, I don't think yeah. teams do that I don't think teams professionally do that but I think there was a lot fans of, did it though but I think so I think people were looking forward I think people thought that this was it I mean there was all, even the whole uh, advertising campaign for Guinness around it was don't jinx it yeah. because we were absolutely we were, certain we, to win we, the thing we can do it as long as you don't say it out loud but um, yeah so I, th- I suppose it's disappointing if you're listening and you looked up a hotel for the final and the flights it's on you <laughs> you did this no but like um, it is it's, it's, um, it's obviously hugely disappointing um, for rugby fans zero from eight from World Cup quarterfinals yeah. Yeah. this was the one so yeah it's a real pity well, we remain optimistic for the future, obviously. <laughs> to end on a positive we can watch trying to retain the Six Nations by the Virgin Media One. I'm going to keep watching the World Cup. Who are you sp- finally, who are you sporting really quickly before you go? Uh, New Zealand, because they beat us and it's good to be beaten by the best. Okay, very quick, very quick. Couldn't care. Oh, Argentina. 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 That'd be nice. Okay. Argentina have been in three World Cup semi Okay, we have to go. We're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> I have been news correspondent Sarah King, political correspondent Gavin Riley. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And news correspondent Richard Chambers. See you next week. We'll chat to you next week. Bye. Bye bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.